would agree with me, wouldn't you, that there is oftentimes a big difference between felt needs and actual needs. Felt needs and actual needs. Because those are not always the same thing. What I mean is what you feel you need and what you actually need don't always match up. Think about it in terms of our health. Symptoms are a felt need. The causes of those symptoms are the actual need. And you would agree, I'm sure, that alleviating the symptoms on the surface are not nearly as important as addressing and healing the causes of those symptoms underneath. Band-aids and creams and medications, that might temporarily soothe the suffering for a time, but if all they do is merely cover the symptoms, you're not actually getting better. You're not really getting well. Why? Because the deeper needs still lie beneath the surface, undealt with and untouched. What is my point? My point is there is a correlation between that and the people of Judah. The people of Judah, the blind, apostate, people to whom Isaiah was called to preach, to whom he did preach for over 50 years of his life, they had both felt needs and they had actual needs. They had both symptoms and they had the causes of those symptoms. And although what they felt they needed was bad and it was real and it was serious and it was terribly dangerous, it was not half as bad or dangerous as what they actually needed. Let me be plain. The symptom of Judah's problems was the invasion of Assyria. That was just a symptom. That was a felt need, serious though it was. The felt need was deliverance from an Assyrian army. 185,000 soldiers strong, but believe it or not, that was just the felt need, the real need, the real need from which they needed even greater deliverance. Was deliverance, was salvation from the slavery of sin and spiritual death. That was the real need. That was the actual need. They were blind, dead, damned and helpless and they didn't even know it or at the very least they refused to acknowledge it they couldn't see they couldn't see that the legions of Assyria coming to wipe them off the face of the planet serious though it was was only the symptom on the surface because you understand what led what led to the crisis of Assyria was centuries of sin and apostasy and spiritual adultery and treating the word of God like it was no big deal and we do that exact same thing in our lives don't we we look only at the symptoms on the surface, not the causes underneath. Whether it's with our health or with our souls, we, we fixate on the comfort and the relief and, and the soothing of the pain, all the while we leave what's actually causing the pain to lie ignored and undealt with and unhealed and untouched. And that will not do, not for Judah, and certainly not for us. Because this morning Isaiah is both prophet and and biblical counselor. 
and he will help his people learn the difference between felt needs and actual needs because those are not always the same thing. And to teach his people the difference between the two, he uses the very crisis hanging over their heads, the very crisis that had the potential to wipe them out of existence, namely the Assyrian army headed straight for Jerusalem even as we speak because scary and terrible though Assyria was, there was still a greater enemy lurking in their very souls from which they needed even greater deliverance. That's why I call this sermon a tale of two woes. A tale of two woes because every chapter in 28 through 33 gets a woe of warning and judgment. A, a warning of wrath or some terrible thing that the people of God had done. But you have to understand, chapter 29 gets two woes. It gets two. The first woe predicts the, the invasion of Assyria from which they needed deliverance. The second woe portrays the spiritual corruption in their souls from which they needed even greater deliverance. They had felt needs, but they had actual needs. They had symptoms, and yet they had causes. And you and I have both of those things in our lives, too, don't we? We have symptoms on the surface, and we have the causes underneath. And I'm wondering this morning if you can tell the difference between those two things. If you can tell the difference between felt needs and actual needs. Maybe you have fears, concerns, and burdens, and anxieties. Maybe you even have depression, maybe even despair. Maybe you have really stubborn sins in your life that just never seem to go away, that you can never seem to conquer. And it's perfectly right that you would want relief. It's perfectly logical that you would want soothing from the pain. That makes sense. It makes sense that you would want to feel better. But the short-term soothing of the pain and the immediate relief of your suffering might not be what you actually need. Those might only be symptoms. Because the real need, the real need lies below the surface all the way down into your very cravings and longings and your very perceptions of what God is like. That is the cause. That is the actual need. And this morning, Isaiah, the prophet counselor, is going to help us learn the difference between those two things. So let's go to the root. Let's go to the text. Let's let the surgery begin. If you have the notes, you can follow along, but here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text five glimpses. Five glimpses of the coming restoration at the end of the age that comforts our souls, that cures our fears, and cultivates trust in Yahweh alone. That's where we're going. Five glimpses of the coming restoration at the end of the age that comforts our souls, that cures our fears, and cultivates trust in Yahweh alone. And the oracle that you're about to see breaks down into three parts. Part one is this. Part one, the portrayal of Assyria's arrival. The portrayal of Assyria's arrival. Because I know... I know that you have heard more about Assyria this last year than you have in your entire life. 
But you have to appreciate what a monster Assyria actually was, and you have to appreciate how long the people of Judah just lived with this nightmare hanging over their heads. The year of these oracles, chapters 28 through 33, the year of these oracles is 701 B.C. That's when they were written, that's when they were composed, 701 B.C., hang on to that date. And you remember, perhaps, all the way back in chapter 7, Isaiah began warning the people of Judah about the threat of Assyria. Chapter 7. That was 30 years ago. Over 30 years ago. For 30 years, over three decades, the people of Judah lived with the nightmare of Assyria hanging over their heads. All the while, for 30 years, Assyria is blowing up the Middle East, taking over everything. And the reason why 701 is such a big deal, you understand, is because that is the year that Assyria finally invaded the land. They crossed the border into the land of Judah. Dozens and cities and towns leveled to the ground. Thousands of people are dead. And at this moment, they are headed to Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers, which is as many or more people than even lived in Jerusalem itself. So suffice it to say, it is not going to end well for Jerusalem. They're never going to make it out of this alive. You understand that, right? And yet what you also have to understand is this is not unfair. It's not like God didn't warn them this was going to happen. All the way back in Deuteronomy 28, 700 years before this, Yahweh told them that should they reject him, should they get in bed with idols, should they shatter the covenant, he would remove his divine protection from them and he would send nations into the land to crush them, just like Assyria. And 124 years later, just like Babylon. You understand, this was no accident. Nor was Assyria some sneaky nation that slipped through the fingers of God. No, you understand. They were his appointed instruments sent by him to break his people. To bring them to their knees. You might remember in chapter 10, God called Assyria the rod of his anger and the axe of his hand. And with Assyria, he struck his people down and he chopped their pride down to the ground because you understand, those are the depths of God's love. That is the extent to which he is willing to go for his people, that he is willing to bruise and to break and to crush and to cut his own people if it means that he can finally heal and mend and save them from destruction. And speaking of Assyria's arrival, look at verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3, and I want you to pay particular attention to Yahweh's own role in their invasion. Verses 1 through 3. Your version might say, ah, but the word is woe. Woe to Ariel. Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year upon year. Observe your feasts on schedule. But I will bring disaster to Ariel, and it will be a grief and a lamentation, but she will be like Ariel to me. And I will encamp against you, around you, like a circle. 
and I will besiege you with a siege wall, and I will raise up siege works against you, and you will be brought low. You will speak from the ground, and your word will be muffled from the dust, and your voice will be like a ghost from the ground, and your word you will whisper from the dust, and the multitude of your enemies will be like fine dust, and the multitude of the violent will be like chaff blowing through, and it shall be literally in the Hebrew, suddenly, suddenly. What we have here is an ancient city's worst nightmare. An enemy army surrounds your city, barricades the gates, locks you in, and then waits outside with their swords drawn until you either starve to death or surrender into their clutches. Either way, it's over for you. It's over. Which is precisely why verse 1 begins with woe. Woe to Ariel, a.k.a. Jerusalem. And you remember that word woe is not actually a word. It's just a sound like the growl of a lion or the rattle of a cobra, it is ominous and deadly and reveals that the city in question, namely Jerusalem, is the object of the wrath and judgment of God and that there is no escape. And you understand that at the time that Isaiah is writing, this invasion of Jerusalem, this had not yet happened. This was still coming in the future, but you need to realize that this was maybe months, maybe just weeks away. For they are under siege and surrounded by Assyria. And yet you notice, of course, don't you, how Jerusalem is described? Notice there in, in verse 1, the rich symbolic theological language. Woe to Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. This can only be Jerusalem. And I know it doesn't say Jerusalem. But if I said to you the Big Apple, you would know I meant New York. If I said the city where Abraham Lincoln lived, you know I meant D.C., and that's exactly what this is. You see, Ariel was a nickname in that day for Jerusalem, and that name Ariel literally means Mount, uh, Lion of God. Lion of God, which refers, of course, to Genesis 49.9, when the Messiah himself was called a lion. And the city where David encamped, that can only be Jerusalem. That's where he reigned when he was king. And so this, of course, raises the question, why describe Jerusalem like this? Why not just call it Jerusalem? Why call it by these alternative terms and be all mysterious and theological? And you see, therein lies the point. Each one of these alternative names for Jerusalem was profoundly messianic. Ariel in the camp of David, those are nicknames for Jerusalem rooted in and reminiscent of their hope in the Messiah to come in the future and build his kingdom on the planet and make all things be the way they ought to be. The point is, the point is Jerusalem is in danger, more danger than they've ever been in their entire history as a city. And yet calling them by these names reminiscent of the Messiah was a sly and clever way to say, although you are in danger, it is not over for you. God will protect you. God will preserve you, Jerusalem. You will still be here when the Messiah returns. And it will be the center and capital of his kingdom. That's the point. 
which is glorious and reassuring, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that there is a woe of warning and wrath upon the city. Look at the end of verse 1. Woe to Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Here it is. Add year upon year, he says. And let your feasts be observed on schedule. What does that even mean? What is he even talking about? Well, you might remember as a kid when you did something naughty and disobedient, deserved a consequence, a punishment, a spanking, a withholding of your allowance. And under the threat of punishment, knowing that the punishment was coming, you all of a sudden start getting really, really good, and you start obeying really, really quick as a way of convincing your parents to change your minds. Ever do that? That's exactly what this was. The feasts to which Isaiah refer here, those are the ones commanded by the law of Moses. Those are the feasts and the festivals and the worship and the offerings commanded by Yahweh. And having been negligent and half-hearted about these for centuries, they thought, they thought they could add year upon year and get God to delay or even cancel the invasion altogether. Because now all of a sudden, they're really zealous and passionate and committed to the law. In other words, what this was was a false revival and a fake awakening and a wicked way to manipulate God. But you understand it was way too little, way too late because the missile of Assyria had already been launched. Look at verses 2 and 3. Notice carefully how God describes his own role in the attack. You think, you think you can delay the invasion? You think you could get me to cancel this altogether? No, no. Verse 2, I will bring destruction to Ariel. And it will be a grief and a lamentation. But she will be like Ariel to me. And I will encamp around you like a circle. And I will besiege against you siege works. And I will raise up against you a siege wall. Do you see it? The language of invasion. Do you see it? Surrounding and besieging the city with barricades and siege walls. Trapping the people inside. Forcing them to surrender or starve to death. That's exactly what this is. This is what Assyria was on their way to do even at this moment. And yet, church, did you notice the pronouns? First person singular, I. God says, I will do this. I will besiege you. I will barricade you. I will barricade your doors. I will wait outside. I will destroy you. I will do this. You see, he speaks as if he were Assyria. And he does that. You know why? Because the future invasion of Jerusalem is the work of the Lord himself. That's his work. That's his doing. Now, Assyria, to be sure, they were... Brutal, and they were savage, and they were violent, and they were terrible, to be sure. But the point is, the battalions of Assyria, unbeknownst to them, were the very instrument of God himself. I need you to know, church, that the exact same thing is true in your lives. The same thing is true of all the pain, and the people, 
and the scenarios that make their way into your lives also. Every inconvenience, every trial, every surprise, every pain, every heartache, every injustice committed against you, listen carefully, is the work of the Lord himself. That's his work. He is at work in your lives. Now, now, to be clear, he himself is not performing the evil. He does not delight in the pain that you experience, but he is the one who ultimately brought the pain, who brought the evil, all with the loving design of refining your faith and causing you to depend on the grace of his son. So the question is, what is your Assyria in your life right now? Maybe a more biblical way to ask it is, what is the chosen instrument of God in your life right now to refine your faith and to cause you to depend on the grace of his son? Because I know that in the moment that it feels like God has abandoned you, it feels like God has left you, but nothing could be further from the truth. He is at work in your lives. And yet the truth was, this was going to hurt. Now, here's the thing, spoiler alert. Yahweh would, just before the buzzer, save Jerusalem from total annihilation. He would not let Assyria enter in and level them to the ground. He would, at the last second, deliver them, and we'll see that when we get to chapters 36 through 39. But nevertheless, nevertheless, what was going to happen was going to shake the city and bring it to its knees. Look at verse 4. It's a picture of absolute despair. People sitting in the dirt in silence as they wait for the people to break through the city. Verse 5 portrays an Assyrian army so massive and innumerable in its size that they're like fine dust, 185,000 soldiers strong. And notice again, verse 6, God's, God's own interpretation of the event. Notice how he describes it. You will be punished by who? Yahweh of hosts. With thunder and with earthquake and a great sound and storm and hurricane and the flame of a consuming fire. That's Assyria. Assyria is the thunder. Assyria is the earthquake. Assyria is the flame of consuming fire. And it was sent by God. This looked like the end, church. This looked like the end of God's people. This looked like the end of God's plan. This looked like the end of Jerusalem. But have you ever had a dream that you were eating something delicious? And the dream was so vivid and it was so real that you believed in your dream that you were going to wake up still eating that food. I remember distinctly as a kid eating in a dream Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> My favorite candy to this day if I still ate candy. And I, and I remember in the dream it was so vivid and real that I could actually taste the Reese's. I could taste it. I remember this distinctly. I still remember. I was four maybe. 
And I, and I remember knowing somehow in the dream that I was going to wake up any moment without the candy in a desperation move inside my dream. I remember taking the package of Reese's and shoving it underneath my pillow and holding it there, knowing that any second I was going to wake up. But if I did it just right, I would wake up still with the Reese's in my mouth and under my pillow. And yet I wake up to find only predictable results. The treat had vanished from my mouth, from under my pillow. What's my point? My point is, that is the exact experience that Assyria would have in trying to destroy Jerusalem. Look at verses 7 and 8. And it will be that the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel and all of her armies and her stronghold and who distress her will be like a dream, a vision of the night. It will be like a hungry man when he dreams, and behold, he is eating. And then he awakes, and literally it says his soul is empty. And it will be like a thirsty man dreaming, and behold, he is drinking, and he awakes, and behold, he is faint. And it says his soul, literally in the Hebrew, is dried out, he is parched. Thus it shall be for the multitude of all the nations who wage war against the mountain of Zion. Do you see the point? That is a promise that God was going to deliver Jerusalem. Though they didn't deserve it, though they deserved to be leveled to the ground, God would intervene. God would protect his city. God would protect his people. Because the closest that any army, Assyria or whoever, will get to annihilating Jerusalem will be like a man eating and drinking in his dreams only to find himself awake with nothing. That's why he says at the end of verse 8, thus it will be. The multitude of all the nations who wage war against Har Zion, the mountain of Zion. It won't work. God would and will protect his people. Listen carefully. God would not allow them to suffer anything that would, that would bring any of his promises to them to being threatened, that would in any way jeopardize any promise that he had ever made to them. And you need to know, church, that the exact same is true of you. That God will not allow you to suffer anything that would in any way jeopardize even one promise that he has made in his son. You need to know that. You, you need to hold on to that. Now, you might suffer in this life. You might suffer great and terrible loss. And some of you already have. Some of you might suffer excruciating pain, either in your soul or physically or emotionally, and some of you already have. But you have to understand that the interpretive key that you need to make sense out of your sufferings is that you need to see them, listen carefully, you need to see your sufferings with the wide-angle lens of eschatology. What do I mean? The wide-angle lens of eschatology. What I mean is you need to view that moment of pain in its grand redemptive context, and you need to understand what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is saving a people for himself, and he is preparing them to inherit the kingdom of his son. 
And when his son arrives, he will restore and reverse everything you have ever suffered. And he will bring the planet back to its paradise-like conditions. Do you see this? I guess the point that I'm trying to make is, and I say this even with a sense of, even with a sense of trembling, is that all pain in this life is but preparation for the kingdom to come. And the paradise will be all the better because of the pain that you endure. Which brings us to part two. Part two, the picture of pervasive perversion. The picture of pervasive perversion. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about being delivered from Assyria. They would be delivered from Assyria. They would. They did not deserve that. They did not deserve that at all. And yet that was what God was graciously going to provide. But here is the thing about being delivered from Assyria. Yes, they would be rescued from the clutches of Assyria. But even after they were rescued from Assyria, they would still be in the claws of their sin. You see, they would be delivered from the great enemy of Assyria, but what they needed to understand is that there was an even greater enemy lurking in their souls from which they needed even a greater deliverance. And here's the thing. Here's the thing you have to understand is that what God had planned to save them from the enemy of their souls, not only was it offensive to them, it was unintelligible to them. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with a strong drink. Why? For Yahweh will pour out on you a spirit of deep sleep. And he will close your eyes, O prophets, and your heads, O seers. He will cover. Do you see it there in verse 9? Something offensive? Something hard to believe? What is it? He says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. In other words, Isaiah has just revealed something to his people that just just blows their minds. They they can't believe it. They, They will not believe it. They're in denial. They stagger like they're drunk. And yet, what is it exactly that was so offensive and hard to believe? Verse 10. Yahweh will pour out on you a spirit of deep sleep. And he will close your eyes, O prophets. And O seers, he will cover your heads. Why is that shocking? Why is that that offensive? There's two things here. First. It says that God has, or rather that he would pour out on them a spirit of deep sleep. You know what that means? That means that in a sovereign judgment for their sin, God would put them in a spiritual coma so that they couldn't and wouldn't believe. That's exactly what we saw in chapter 6, isn't it? 
that they would be largely unresponsive and unable to perceive the truth about God, about what God would reveal, about how he would save them. Think of it, think of it, that he would prevent them from believing the very thing that would save them if they just believed it. That is offensive. And that is shocking. But the second offensive thing, number two, listen carefully, God would close the eyes of the prophets and he would cover the heads of the seers. What what does that even mean? It means this. No more visions. No more prophecies. No more revelations. There was coming a time in the future when the prophets and seers would be out of work and unemployed because God would not speak anymore. He would be done speaking. No more messages to the prophets. In fact, no more prophets at all. And you think, when was that supposed to happen? Did that ever happen? You better believe it happened. Because you remember, don't you, that between the Old and New Testaments, there was a 400-year period of silence in which God said nothing. That's exactly what this is. That's offensive and that's shocking. But Isaiah's not done. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is kind of tricky. So, so, so bear with me. Labor here, fasten your seatbelts. This, I believe verses 11 and 12 is prophetic for how the people of Judah will respond when they hear about God's plan to save them from their sins. In other words, ask this question as we read. Will they get it? Will it be intelligible to them? 11 and 12. The revelation of everything, i.e. that is coming, will be like the words of a sealed book which are given to him who can read, saying, read this, but he will say, I cannot read it, for it is sealed. And then the book will be given to one who does not know how to read, saying, read this, but he will say, I cannot read it. Question, will they get it? Will what God reveals in the future about how to save them, will it be intelligible to them? Will it make sense to them? Will they understand what God has revealed? And Isaiah's answer is no. Now, keep in mind, Isaiah has not yet revealed how God is going to save them. In fact, he won't actually do so until chapter 53, and you know about chapter 53, don't you? But his point is very simply that when the people of Israel hear about how God is going to save them from their sin, it's going to be like trying to read from a book that's sealed or a file that's encrypted or on a locked computer to which they don't have access. It's going to make zero sense to them. They're not going to get it. But then he takes it a step further in verse 11, doesn't he? Even if they did have access to the document, it would make zero difference because they'd be like a person who can't even read anyway. The point is this, the spiritual blindness and coma and curse that God would place upon his people as a judgment on them would make what he had planned for the future offensive, foolish, stupid, and unintelligible. They wouldn't get it, and guess what? They wouldn't like it either. The question is, what wouldn't they like? 
what wouldn't they understand? What is it exactly that God would reveal to them about how to save them that would be so unintelligible to them? That's the question. What was the good news of salvation that would be so confusing to them? But before Isaiah reveals the answer, look, look at verse 13. Look at the pervasive spiritual corruption from which they needed to be saved. Verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draws near with their mouth, and with their lips they glorify me, but their heart is far away from me. And their fear of me is nothing but the commandments of men. Do you see it? Do you see the danger from which they needed to be delivered? Even more than they needed deliverance from Assyria? You understand Assyria was but a terrifying symptom of a deeper issue from which they needed even greater deliverance. This here, verse 13, this was the danger behind the danger. This was the real need behind the felt need. And look at the text. What was it? What was the treacherous spiritual cancer in their souls from which, from which they needed deliverance? You could see it, can't you? It was the sinister, diabolical, God-belittling sin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Look what Yahweh says. He says, these people, they draw near with their mouth and with their lips, literally in the Hebrew, they glorify me. That's the word, they glorify me. They, they, this is astonishing to me. They had it exactly right. The words, I mean, they had the words right. They would have gladly affirmed the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man to which they would have rightly responded to glorify God and enjoy him forever? They used the right words. They, they said the right things. They sang the right songs. They quoted the right verses. They performed the right rituals. They memorized the script. They recited the creed. They raise their hands at just the right time, but like a dagger in the chest, God says, their heart is far away from me. Meaning what? Meaning they had a good liturgy, but they had no love for God. They had the right dogma, but they had no delight in God. For them, worship was not a feast to be devoured. Uh, but, a, but a duty to fulfill. Pursuing God was a superficial box-checking obligation that they used as currency to manipulate God in giving them what they really wanted. There was no passion here. There was no fire here. There was no zeal here. What was missing in their piety was that weak need, face to the ground, soul trembling, hunger for God as the treasure of their souls. Now their worship was pure formality, disinterested duty, professional responsibility, Cool, rehearsed decorum and ceremony automated 
push-button, formulaic superficiality to get from God what they really wanted, and it certainly was not God. They did not have what Jonathan Edwards called a God-entranced vision of all things. But the sword of accusation has another edge to it. Look at the end of verse 13. God says, their fear of me, their fear of me is nothing but the learned commandments of men. Your word might say reverence, but the Hebrew word is fear. They feared God, in a sense, in a way, but it was all outward in form. It was fleshly in motivation. Driven by the need for peer approval. It was all ritual and ceremony and decorum and formality and routine and convention and schedule and protocol and procedures taught and enforced by men. And none of it was birthed by, none of it was inspired by meditation on Holy Scripture. It was all just fake. It was all just fake. And that, you see, is what they needed to be delivered from even more than they needed to be delivered from Assyria. And that, of course, leads me to ask you, church, listen carefully. How is your worship? How is your worship? And I don't merely mean on Sunday morning. What I'm saying is, do you have, do you have authentic, affectionate passion and hunger for God? Or is your Christianity more cultural in nature? A kind of consumer, choose your own version of the faith. Do you have that weak need, face to the ground, soul-trembling desperation from God as your greatest treasure? Or have you, like the church in Ephesus, left your first love? Is the word of God for you a feast to be devoured or a formality to be done? Is seeking Christ for you a delight to the soul or is is it a mere duty to fulfill? That's the question. Because this is not where these people were at. And here's the thing, and this is going to be the toughest part of the sermon. As if anything in Isaiah is easy. But here's the thing about the people to whom Isaiah is speaking. In verse 13, get this, he's not actually talking about the people of his own day. What I'm saying is, verse 13 is a prophecy about a future generation of Jews. Because verse 13 sounded familiar, didn't it? You recognized it, I know you did, and the reason why you did is because Christ himself quoted this very verse in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, when in a toe-to-toe, in the ring, gloves off battle with the Pharisees, and here is what he said. Listen very carefully what Christ said about this verse and the verses in your notes if you've got them. Here's what he said to the Pharisees. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. He was talking about you. He wasn't talking about the people of his own day. These people 
honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Isaiah was talking about a future generation of Jews, in fact, the very generation of Jews who hated and crucified their own Messiah. Do you understand this? Verse 13 is a prophecy fulfilled. These are the Jews of the Gospels and the book of Acts. That's what this is. And the question is, did the Jews of the Gospels and Acts like what God had revealed about how to save them? Did they understand what God had revealed about how to save them? They did not. The question is, what was God's plan to save them? What was his plan? How had God designed to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair to reconcile them to God and forgive their sin how was God going to do that what was the plan what was the secret weapon of salvation to save ruined sinners and you know you know exactly what that is don't you it was a suffering savior it was a crucified and risen redeemer it was a murdered Messiah. The secret weapon to save their souls was a sin-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary death in the place of the very people who deserved to die. And this method that God had planned to save his people, the Jews of that day, did not like. And they didn't get it either. It was confusing. It was offensive to them. It was not what they wanted. It's not what they expected. It shattered every notion of what they felt like they needed. With the exception of very few, a suffering Savior to save the souls of men was foolish and nonsensical. And yet it was and is the only way. It's called the gospel. It's called the gospel. And cryptic though it was, this is what Isaiah is referring to here. You see, you, under, you have to understand that verses 13 and 14, they are prophetic in nature. They are pointing to the future. Although the text doesn't say the gospel, although it doesn't say crucified, although it doesn't say Messiah, that's exactly what it's referring to. Notice there in verse 14, Verse 14, that, that God says, I will again work wonders for this people in a wonderful way and with wonder. And it will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, and the, discerning of the, dis, the discernment of the discerning. It will cover. It's like, well, what, how, where is the gospel in that? Well, you should know. You see the word wonderful there? Every time Isaiah uses that word, it's always a reference to the Messiah. Chapter 9, verse 6, and the Messiah will be wonderful counselor. And you should know that the Apostle Paul quotes chapter 29, verse 14 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and says that this was their response to the gospel, that the gospel would crush the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. This is a prophecy of the gospel which they would reject. What this does is leads me to ask you the question. The, the Jews of Christ's day and of Acts, they rejected the beautiful scandal of the cross. My, my question for you, church, is have you embraced the scandal of the cross? Have you done that? 
Have you embraced the offense of a crucified Savior? As the only way to save you from eternal woe and destruction, have you done so? Have you embraced the foolishness of a cross? Or are you still trying to earn your acceptance with God by your own righteousness? Are you trying to do that? And the reason why I ask that question, because there are millions, millions of professing Christians who have sat in church for decades, who still live under the tragic delusion that their acceptance with God can be earned and gained by their own good works and morality. They feel that they have to earn their own salvation. And worse yet, they believe that they can. Is that you? Is that you? You need to understand only the scandal of a suffering Savior who died, a sin-bearing death in the place of sinners. That alone is the remedy to rescue ruined sinners from corruption and destruction. So if you have not done so, church, if you have not done that, today is the day to yield to him. Stop playing games and hedging your bets and sitting on the fence and being a good agnostic and shrugging your shoulders. I don't know. I don't know. You do know. You do know. This is not an invitation. This is a summons from the king himself. Today, today is the day to yield. Today is the day to bow. Today is the day to surrender and submit yourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because the day is coming when it will be too I have a third part of my sermon that I have not preached yet. Somehow we're going to do this in two minutes or less. Verses 17 through 24 is part three. You thought I was going to quit. No. No. You did not hire me to quit. Very quickly, the preview of remarkable restoration. What Isaiah does in verses 17 through 24 is he does his favorite thing to do, which is eschatology. Eschatology. He, he points in the future and he gives us a glimpse, a glimpse of what the whole world will be like when the kingdom is restored to the earth. You look there in verse 17, it's mysterious, it is cryptic, it is interesting, but he describes the rejuvenation of creation. Church, you understand, don't you? You understand that when Jesus Christ returns, he will extract the curse from the planet and he will make it like paradise. He will make it like the Garden of Eden again. You understand that, don't you? Our future is not some weird, ethereal, immaterial, heavenly reality where we are floating orbs in togas and harps. No, it will be a literal kingdom on this planet, sort of like the Garden of Eden, but better than that because Jesus Christ will be there. That's what he's describing in verse 17, and you understand what that does is comfort our souls, cure our fears, and cultivate trust in Yahweh. Glimpse number two, and these are all in your notes, the regeneration of the nations the regeneration of the nations. If we had time, we could walk through this and, and describing, but what he is describing here is, the, is that the blind will see and the deaf will hear, and what he's describing is spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. He's describing one day that when the wicked are removed, the world will be filled with regenerated worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That's coming. 
And what does that do but comfort our fears, cure our faith, and cultivate trust in Yahweh, number three. Number three, there will be rejoicing in Yahweh in the future. The glimpse of the future is rejoicing in Yahweh. Verse 19 describes that, that the, the humble will rejoice in Yahweh, that people will shout to, with joy to the God of Israel. This is what the world is going to be like. It is filled with rage and terror and chaos now. It, it thunders with war now, but one day it will thunder with joy. You believe that, don't you? You believe that, don't you? And knowing that that will be the end, knowing that that will be the kingdom, it comforts our souls, it cures our fears, it cultivates trust in Yahweh alone. Number four, glimpse of the coming restoration. Number four, the removal of the wicked. The removal of the wicked. This is going to happen. Verses 20 and 21 describes the violent coming to an end. Scoffers and, and mockers being removed. All evildoers cut off and exterminated and executed. You know this day is coming, don't you? It is coming. And knowing that the wicked will be removed, what does that do but comfort our souls and cure our fears and cultivate trust in Yahweh alone? And last but not least, glimpse number five, the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel, 22 through 24. Church, you have to understand God is not done with Israel. One day there will be no more shame, humiliation, or fear. One day Israel will be done blowing up their lives with sin. The text goes on to describe that they will be restored to the land of Jerusalem. I mean, you understand, don't you, that more Jews live outside of Israel than live in Israel? And yet one day they will be restored. Not in their current condition of unbelief. But look at the end of verse 23. They will sanctify my name. And they will sanctify the God, the Holy One of Jacob, and the God of Israel. They will be in dread. One day guilty, vile, and helpless Israel will be regenerated and redeemed and restored and reconciled to Yahweh as their greatest treasure and we will be there on the planet to enjoy Jesus Christ with them in his kingdom. In hearing that, what does it do for us but comfort our souls and cure our fears and cultivate trust in Yahweh? Well, Lord, we may not have understand everything that Isaiah throws at us. There's a lot of curveballs, and there's a lot of things that are new for us and hard to wrap our heads around, Lord. But at the very least, oh, Lord, we can say with great confidence that Isaiah is a prophet of hope. We see here, oh, Lord, that what Isaiah says at least helps us to understand that one day all things will be made right. That everything that is ugly and putrid and broken and backwards and mangled and mutilated, that Jesus Christ, you will make it right in the end. You will restore, you will reverse everything we ever suffered. And you will be there. And as chapter 33 says, we will see you in your beauty. And you will be the crown and jewel of the earth. And frankly, Lord, we cannot wait 
for that day. And I ask, I ask you for me and for this beloved flock that you would cause the future to influence the present, that you would cause what your plan is going to be at the end, that the kingdom in the future would shape our lives in the present, that you would give us that joy and that courage and that fearlessness to live in a fallen world and to face our greatest terrors with the laugh of faith, knowing that you will come and make all things right in the world. We're grateful, grateful for this message from the prophet Isaiah. In your mighty name we